Good evening. Welcome to the Ecology Hour on KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, K201HR 88.1 FM in Fort Bragg, and streaming live on the web at kzyx.org. This is Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. Tonight on the Ecology Hour, we're going to address a topic of some local interest and uh, really of great interest to me, uh, and it's going to touch on themes of invasion biology and uh, the local marine and estuarine ecosystems, so a lot to talk about. Let's get right into it. With me by Squadcast is the co-host of this program, Dr. Robert Spies. Bob, do you want to introduce tonight's guest for us? Yeah, I've been looking forward to this one for a while, uh, Tim, and we're uh, very lucky to have uh, Dr. Ted Grossholtz, a professor at UC Davis, an ecologist, and a part of the Cooperative Extension. He's a specialist there. Uh, he deals with uh, invasive uh, species and their bi biology of invasive species and community ecology and population dynamics and uh, application of ecological theory to coastal management problems. And uh, Ted, thank you for uh, joining us. Uh, pleased to have you. Well, thanks for inviting me. Thank you. Uh, we usually ask our guests uh, how they got interested in uh, ecology and uh, kind of what the path that they've taken to where they are now and a little bit about the their, what their what their interests are so uh, perhaps you could uh, let us know how all that happened sure yeah well I actually wasn't one of those kids that dragged home uh, lots of critters and buckets to show my mom and dad when I was little so I, I was always interested in, in environmental issues but not necessarily the science side of it so it was only as an undergraduate that I <clears throat> ran into a, a new professor, Mark Burtness, who got me involved in his research and showed me what ecology was all about and had followed it from there. I you know, took a few years off before grad school, working in the Caribbean, and went to grad school and had a pretty much a, a fairly straightforward academic you know, trajectory since then. I was a professor at the University of New Hampshire for a couple of years prior to coming to University of California, Davis. All right, and uh, uh, tonight we're going to try to focus on uh, green crabs, and uh, perhaps you could frame it, uh, the question um, for us, uh, Tim, because uh, it's been your ex experience in the local estuaries that kind of brought this to our attention. Yeah, sure, I'd love to, yeah. It's uh, something that just suddenly came up. As many of our listeners will know, recreational Dungeness crab fishing season opened on the first Saturday of November, as it always does. And uh, I, I don't usually do this, but for some reason I decided I would go and crab at Big River on opening day uh, by kayak. And it was kind of a zoo because there were so many people there for opening day, a crazy scene. But everyone in the river was complaining uh, that they weren't getting any Dungeness crab. All they were catching were green crabs. And I thought, what are you talking about? What do you mean green crabs? Is that like a Dungeness crab that isn't fully grown or what? No, it turns out that the that Big River Estuary has been invaded by uh, a new species of crab, uh, the, uh, the Eurasian green crab. And that sent me off down a rabbit hole trying to find out more about these things. Uh, and what that I was pulling up in my crab rings. What are these? 
And that led me to Dr. Grossholtz, who it turns out is exactly the guy to talk about this because he's been researching the green crab invasion on the West Coast. So uh, I'm really happy that you're able to come on the air with us and talk about these things so quickly and uh, give people a little more uh, information about what's going on in our coastal rivers because we are certainly not the only people uh, dealing with these things. Well, happy to be here. Maybe we could start if you just tell us what are green crabs? Where do, where do they originally come from and you know what's their life history like? And then we'll get into why they're here. Well, it's, they are a non-native species, so they're an invader that's actually probably one of the most widely distributed around the planet. It's invaded five different continents, so we're not the only place it showed up and been unwanted. It's native to the European coast, as the name implies, so it is a it's a close relative, actually. It's in the same family as blue crabs. It actually is a swimming crab. And um, physiologically, it's a really unusual. It can actually breathe air out of, you know, sort of as long as the gills are kept wet. So it has a very amazing ability to kind of invade very stressful areas and make it through in places where other other species can't. It, it occupies a, an area or a zone along the California coast and elsewhere where we don't have our native species. So although they were showing up in the crab traps, they can occupy much higher areas where they have the clams and small crustaceans and a lot of other species all of themselves. So they're, they're very successful in, um, as an invader. They have had significant impacts um, on a wide range of things from just the species that I mentioned and that we find around the estuaries to commercial species also. So on the East Coast, uh, back in the uh, 1940s and 50s, there were lots and lots of green crabs in Maine and Maritime Canada, and they resulted in the loss of or really the, the, the demise of the soft shell clam fishery. And that's been repeated a couple other places. So their impacts have been you know, really com both commercial and uh, ecological as they've invaded different places. So are they preying on the, uh, on the soft shell clams? Yeah, so they're, they're a big uh, clam consumer. Um, they will, of course, eat, you know, small stages of other, you know, other crabs, like, you know, little Dungeness crabs when they come across them, lots of other amphipods, a lot of other species groups, uh, worms as well. So they, they have a very, very broad diet. So whenever they land in a new place, it's very easy for them to find something to eat. Yeah, that's a familiar story. We had an interview here a few months ago about the barred owl. Same kind of story is uh, very similar in many ways to a native owl, but their diet is much more generalized. And so they were able to compete very successfully in the same ecosystems. Talk a little bit about the this the invasion history of these crabs because they you know they were native to Europe and Asia but they showed up on the east coast of the United States quite a long time ago. Right, they've been on the east coast for probably about 150 years. They probably came over. We don't, obviously don't know the actual means, but probably uh, with ships and boats. A lot of species were brought over from Europe. Actually, they used to have solid ballast. So ships will keep ballast 
uh, aboard to help stabilize them on the oceans. Nowadays, we have, they have ballast tanks to fill it with water, but back then they used to literally shovel the sediments and whatever else they could find from the coast and put them in the bottom of the ships and the ships would come over and all sorts of manner of species got introduced as a result of that. They've made their way around the planet in you know, a variety of ways, likely via ballast water, um, also via shipments of um, everything from bait worms to other shellfish. For instance, in the West Coast, we f found them in bait boxes. So, um, you know, things like pile worms, you know, large worms used for fishing will get packed up and will, they'll, they're captured and sort of harvested in Maine. Um, the folks there will pack them with um, <clears throat> some of the seaweeds from the rocky shore, which includes little green crabs. And we found 24 other species in those bait boxes and they get shipped overnight by FedEx and people take the worms out and they're great bait, but then usually they drop the box of other stuff in the bay with plus or minus 24 other species. So it's a very easy way for them to kind of move around the planet. Um, we know from genetic studies that they actually did come from the, from the East Coast. So they didn't come from other places where they've invaded like Australia. So we, we have a pretty good idea how, you know, where they came from. We don't know exactly how they got there. And they got to the East Coast back in the 19th century sometime? Yeah, so they've been there a long time. And they they just slowly moved their way up the, through the Northeast, you know, into northern New England uh, during, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, then into maritime Canada. At this point, they're found, you know, all the way, uh, you know, through Nova Scotia, but also New Brunswick, you know, the Brass Door Lakes. They're now in and around Prince Edward Island and the Gulf of St. Lawrence. So, you know, they've, they've made their way quite successfully. The last, the most recent invasion is actually of Newfoundland. So there are green crabs established and causing trouble in Newfoundland. And the uh, Fisheries and Oceans Canada uh, folks have their hands full with the invasions there. Is the uh, distribution on the West Coast, uh, is their population expanding rapidly right now? And do we know where they, the source population or populations are for the ones we have? Yeah, so on the West Coast, again, they, they came from the East Coast, we know genetically. They first showed up in San Francisco Bay, which tends to be the sort of ground zero for many invasions uh, on the West Coast. And uh, they were first found uh, sort of right around 89, 90. Um, we don't, again, we don't know exactly how they got there. Could be bait boxes, could be other means. Um, and then they, they started spreading northward uh, from, from that point. So as, as of about 1994, they were down in Elkhorn Slough in, in, in Monterey Bay. But they were also up in Bodega Bay and Tamales Bay and sort of those bays up north. Then they spread very rapidly. So in a couple of years, they spread up the northern California coast. Actually, we found them, sorry to hear tell you, in Big River in 1996. Uh, about. <laughs> so they, they've been there a long time. Um, and they made their way all the way up to uh, the Washington coast in Willapa Bay and Grace Harbor. Um, and took a while to expand beyond that, but now they are well established in Barkley Sound and they're making their way up uh, on the inside of Vancouver Island. They haven't made it yet to southeastern Alaska, but 
they're they're getting close, so they they keep moving moving northward. I know state of Alaska's got a kind of a green crab watch program, yeah. I think, or at least yes, they do. The Department of Fish and Game has something going on to monitor. They do. They've had people monitoring in several places in at Valdez, um, and in Kodiak, a few other places too at uh, Sitka. So there there are you know sort of sentinel groups out looking for green crabs in various parts of Alaska. Yeah. So they've actually been here in the Mendocino Coast Rivers for quite a long time, and uh, I just never noticed, and, and they haven't really seemed to be a problem before that. That's kind of That's, interesting. It, it's a good, and the question is, well, why? Well, we, you know, we can make up stories. We, we know from watching other invasions that this is sort of a typical type of thing of behavior. They'll, they'll sort of start out at large numbers and go down and stay that way for a while, and numbers can sort of sporadically pop back up for various reasons. We, you know, there were famous invasions of Chinese mitten crabs in Europe. You know, they were just almost sort of like monster movie levels of mitten crabs all over the streets and, you know, the, the areas there. And what we've seen here is, is just sort of a resurgence. Now you could say, well, you know, we've had a couple warm years, probably warmer temperatures are certainly a better thing for them. Um, they are limited by uh, cold temperatures, especially reproduction wise. So that could happen. Um, evolution does happen. We have seen that. So they um, may just uh, adapt over time to be able to deal with, you know, conditions and, and reproduce and reach larger numbers. So what you're seeing is Yes, a recent outbreak of green crabs in Little River, but we've all, we're also seeing that in a few other places as well too. So it's been a quote unquote good year for green crabs. So con ecological conditions just kind of line up. Uh, so uh -huh. when they reproduce, they get a high survival rate from their larvae, right? Yeah. Yep, yep, yeah. that's right. Yeah, this would probably be a good time to talk about how the you know what their life history is like and. Are they are they are, are they a swimming crab like the uh, blue crab? They are a swimming crab, but nothing quite like the blue crab. I mean, they will pick up and paddle around and swim. Uh, as you know, you know you can be out trawling in thirty feet of water in the Chesapeake Bay, and you'll get blue crabs. I mean, they're yeah, literally yeah. swimming in. The, um, green crabs don't do that, so they're really running around the bottom, but they will pick up and paddle around a little bit, but not to the same degree. Do they have those modified? A rear they do fan like they do. Uh, appendages yeah they have the pleopods yeah so they have a flattened last leg if you pick one up you'll see that it's not pointy it actually is yeah. sort of paddle like yeah but right. not, not they just don't use it quite to the same degree but they are great dispersers because their life history involves a dispersal stage so as do most crabs they have a fairly long um, dispersal period where they as as a, a larva a swimming stage that can be in the in the water column for 30 to 60 days, depending on food and temperature. So that's plenty of time to catch a ride on, to, to leave an estuary and catch a ride on an ocean current and move quite a ways from where they were produced. And that's probably almost certainly how they're moving around because they really have occupied every available harbor and estuary along the West Coast between say Monterey Bay and, you know, northern British Columbia. It's very hard to find places where, where they're not. They have not gone further south than Monterey Bay. I, I found one once 
in Morro Bay, published that on the front page of the LA Times, but we have not found them since then. So. Well, for our listeners, if you've just joined us, uh, tonight we're talking to uh, Dr. Ted Grossholtz, professor from UC Davis. We're talking about green crabs in our local estuaries, including uh, Big River and the Albion River, and uh, what might be done to control them and what kind of a threat they might be. So uh, when do they reproduce? They got a, they got a season, or are they just go? Yeah, yeah. Um, in general, they are carrying eggs sort of late winter into the spring, but we certainly find evidence of them probably reproducing a couple times. So it seems like um, remembering that, you know, they are native to a pretty cold climate, Northern Europe, where, you know, there just is an extended summer season. Same is true in, you know, New England. Um, I think in California, because things don't freeze here, they're sort of, they're able to kind of crank out an extra reproductive generation. We have some data to show that. So their window of reproduction is certainly larger here than it is elsewhere. And and about when is that? Are they carrying row all the time and they just uh, fertilize? Probably into the spring, maybe into maybe the early summer. We have seen, you know, we'll say little smaller stages showing up a little bit later, but the vast majority of the egg production recruitment would be sort of late winter into the spring. So you'll, you know, you start to see little green crabs in spring to late spring and they grow quickly. They'll grow up to close to adult size by the end of the summer. How many years does it take them to become sexually mature? Just one. They'll, they'll be mature within a year. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then how long, how long are they viable? How long do they live? Yeah, they, they, I mean, they could live five or six years. I'm not sure we have the the upper limit, but but certainly they'll, they'll survive uh, in many cases, five or six years and maybe a little bit more. Are there predators that really like them? I mean, do sea otters, uh, river otters, uh, chomp, chomp? It's a great question. Um, I wish we had better information about them. Certainly when they first showed up, um, there weren't many predators. We kept an eye out for birds and, you know, other more observable predators and didn't see a lot of evidence of that. Um, I think what we did see is that after the first few years, the number of green crabs really did go down in, in many places. And that could be just simply that the smallest stages, you know, were being, you know, eaten by things like sculpins and other kinds of, you know, sort of marsh fishes that run around eating things like that. So I'm not sure that the adult stages were necessarily getting consumed, although they they could be, but I think certainly the younger stages, because they're in these very shallow areas, um, probably uh, were preyed on more over time once the predators sort of figured figured this all out. I I think all of those could be potential predators, I mean, river otters. And we do know that in one place that that sea otters actually um, we're eating these. We did some studies down in Elkhorn Slough with some folks at uh, Moss Landing, and we found uh, there's one location where otters will come out and scat. They don't usually do that, but there was a resident population in Elkhorn Slough for a long time, and we got some scats, and sure enough, they had green crabs in them. So we know that sea otters will eat them. Uh, yeah, it might be interesting to, to uh, kind of look at latrine sites of the, of the river otters Mm-hmm. and uh, see if there's a crab parts uh yeah that that would be yeah. really interesting to yeah, see yeah because yeah, yeah. yeah, they do do that regularly yeah they make latrines yeah so it's, it's an argument for maintaining uh you know diverse native ecosystems right you mentioned the the kind of the cycle that there's a boom and bust to these invasions and 
in some cases, the, the end result is an increase in biodiversity. Everything just kind of settles back out, right? There was a big scare back in the 80s, I remember, from the Chinese mitten crab in San Francisco Bay. And uh, it's hard to even find any information about how what happened there because the subject just kind of stopped being interesting, but the mitten crabs kind of faded into the background, right? Well, the abundance has faded into the background. So yeah. the problems they caused when they first showed up, you know, which was, you know, clogging some of the water pump stations, you know, there were the federal and state uh, operations. They, they just literally, you know, I wouldn't say died off, but the abundance has really crashed. Um, and so there are just very few mitten crabs in San Francisco Bay. The bigger issue is, as you alluded to, is, well, we're, you know, invaders certainly do add to the species list. And so one question is, well, you know, that good thing or a bad thing? I mean, it depends on what their impacts are otherwise. I mean, simply numbers of species on the list isn't really a good indicator necessarily of how the system works. I mean, if, if it's removing and sort of turning you know, creating functional extinction, I'll sort of a little bit jargony, but if they reduce native species and reduce their ability to provide the functions that they provide, you know, then you're not really gaining much. In other words, if you get one invader and two, three, four native species are reduced down to trivial numbers, that's not a, not a great thing. The other thing is a lot of diversity has to do with differences between locations. So what we call beta diversity. So the idea that a set of species in one location actually is different than a set of species in another location. That allows, you know, maybe some more sensitive species to exist in places without, you know, a dominant predator. There's a lot of things that come from having diversity at this at, at different, you know, amongst different sites. And that's one of the things invasions do is basically, you know, kind of, uh, you know, in, by invading all the different sites, it, it reduces the differences between sites. And we start getting, you know, this kind of same group of species coastwise or planet-wide. And so um, the opportunity, you know, for local extinctions or removals increases because then you have species that hadn't really evolved together. Suddenly there you have predators, you know, in situations where they hadn't been previously. So. Yeah, I mean, there are certainly pluses and minuses uh, to all invasions, and I think it's important to sort of, you know, determine what those those pluses or minuses are, to, you know, to base our management decisions on. I mean, we certainly, I mean, no one would suggest getting rid of something just because it's a new species. A, we don't have the resources or the wherewithal, and there's no need to. So it's really a question of what the impacts of that new invader is. Is it mainly when the, the green crabs start affecting a, a harvestable species, uh, for instance, the uh, Dungeness crab, that there's a lot of pressure to take more action? Well, certainly, I mean, if that turns out to be the case, yeah. I, I don't have information myself. I don't know whether others at this point do. They certainly have impacts on local clams and crabs. I mean, we saw, you know, greater than 90% declines in some of the smaller species in the mudflats of central California. And, and this is the food base for shorebirds. So we did some studies looking at how shorebirds change their foraging habits. And so that, you know, the impacts of removing a lot of other native species, they may not be commercially important, you know, are, are significant. 
I think one of, you know, to be honest, I'd say, you know, commercial um, shellfish production in Central California isn't a huge industry. Obviously, there, you know, there's oysters, um, you know, there are manila clams or a few others. Um, but as you get further north into Oregon, Washington, Alaska, shellfish, you know, uh, commercial shellfish operations are a much bigger deal, much more valuable uh, commercially. And so that's, you know, green crabs are a much bigger threat uh, as you get further north. And we've seen that kind of impact on commercial shell fisheries in New England. So they're losing like $20 million a year. We published a paper on that. So the, uh, you know, the, the clam fisheries um, in, in Massachusetts and uh, in that area, you know, spend a lot of time and a lot of money um, keeping green crabs out of their shellfish beds. So, um, you know, that kind of thing is, you know, could happen further north if green crabs get more abundant. So it's a matter of two things, how abundant are green crabs? And then secondly, what's at risk? I think what you're seeing, um, you know, in Little River is suddenly a, a, a great, you know, influx of, of green crabs. So if they remain at high abundance, for a significant period of time, I mean, they may have an impact on small stages of Dungeness crabs. Yep. When you say an impact on shorebirds, you get my attention. And, mm -hmm. you know, the Mendocino Coast Audubon Society has a long-running shorebird monitoring project here, uh, tracking the numbers that pass through on migration. We don't have a lot of them that, that either breed here or reside uh, over the winter, but we see a lot on migration, and it's an important area for them because they need to stop and feed on their way south. They have these immense migrations and it's extremely energy costly. So they need to replenish and if we're losing some of their vital food sources that can potentially have really far-reaching effects. Right, so the, you know a lot of the shorebirds we were studying in Bodega Harbor, um, you know, sort of that are wintering in the harbor and leave, you know, they, they take off and, you know, they're flying northward to the Arctic. These are, you know, birds that, you know, a lot of which uh, breed in Arctic areas. And so, you know, they need to sort of undergo molting at the right time. They need to have, you know, the right, you know, sort of, you know, fat levels to be able to pick up and, and fly off and be able to do this. And if, if they're struggling, if they're, you know, eating lesser quality food and it's taking longer to start the migration, that's, you know, that's not a good thing. So um, there was a study that I was involved with, a, a grad student published in conservation biology, where she had these uh, large arenas on the mudflats and was able, you know, she was an expert shorebirder. She was working with, you know, then Point, you know, uh, the Point Reyes Bird Observatory, now Point Blue. And so um, she was misnetting uh, sanderlings and she was able to put them in these uh, arenas on, you know, mudflats and in areas either that had been had green crabs added or not, and the green crabs reduced the amount of you know food available, and she was actually able to measure direct impacts on shorebirds in terms of like you know weight gains over periods of time. So it was, you know, she, there's clear information that they they do impact you know uh, shorebird foraging again, but it's a number, it's it's a matter of abundance. So if it's a year where there are a lot of green crabs, then that could be, they could have a significant impact. But again, as many folks have noticed, last decade or two, the numbers of green crabs haven't been as significant as they were, you know, when they first showed up with maybe this very recent, you know, um, 
population burst that, that you've seen and we're seeing elsewhere. So we'll just have to wait and see what happens, you know, this year, next year. Uh, tonight, we're talking to uh, Dr. Ted Grossholtz, professor from UC Davis. We're talking about green crabs in our local estuaries, including uh, Big River and the Albion River, and uh, what might be done to control them and what, what kind of a threat they might be. So I was going to ask you, uh, do green crabs, uh, are they a potential problem for the uh, oyster farms that are in Tomales Bay and Humboldt Bay, for instance? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, green crabs don't seem to um, be as, you know, able predators on, um, you know, it, on you know oysters as much as they are uh, for other species like clams and so um, especially when they're you know say attached if they're attached to, to cults you know if they're just singles you know maybe a little bit so but um, you know it, we the way that they're grown maybe you know make the make oysters a little bit more a little bit less prone to that but we have not seen uh, green crabs be as much of a problem for commercial uh, oyster production as we have for, say, um, commercial uh, manila clam production. So we, there were um, Hog Island oyster when green crabs first showed up were losing, you know, probably 20, 30 percent of their clam production. Um, you know, that hasn't happened recently, but um, we're keeping an eye out just to see what, you know, if green crabs do become more of a problem for oysters. But at this point, not they have not. So the Manila crabs are more of a benthic clam. They're down in the mud. Well, it's just it's just how green crabs go about preying. I mean, you know, oysters are just you know shaped oddly. I mean, you know, you can spend <laughs> a lot of time on the the outer part of the shell and not get very far into the middle. So I mean, it's it's there's a lot of you know behavior that goes into you know determining whether they eat something or not. So they they don't seem to be as adept with oysters or as determined to get into them. There, there's a lot of other speed, there are a lot of other things oysters have to worry about, like uh, oyster drills, so. Mm -hmm. Has anybody ever put uh, oysters in uh, aquaria and watched how green crabs interact with them? Mm -hmm. Yep, yeah, we've done that. And, um, you know, they they don't seem to be as able to do that. We, we did that more with, um, say, Olympia oysters on cobbles, because we were also interested in, you know, because as you know, um, commercial oysters, Pacific oysters aren't found outside of bags. So, you know, green crabs have to get in the bags. Um, they don't, they're not naturalized. You, you can find some when you get up to Humboldt Bay and further north, but down in central California, not so much. Um, so, and we didn't find that they were actually able to do much with oysters on rocks. That just, you know, mechanically, whatever they did, that wasn't something they did very well. Now we've seen them primarily, you know, uh, in the rivers here in the estuaries. Uh, do they also go into the open ocean? That's that's a really good question. Um, yeah. So as far as we've seen, and we've really looked and looked and looked and looked, we don't see them on the outer coast, even in protected areas. Like you know, you might expect like the backsides of jetties or things like that, um, and they're not there. Um, which is odd because in their native range or even in the Northeast, I mean, I've seen them on exposed, you know, rocky shores, uh, you know, in the Northeast, I mean, on the Isles of Shoals and 
you know, not on Smutty Nose and Appledore Islands. I mean, they're there underneath the, the laminaria. You pick up this big wad of, you know, brown alga on the rocky shores. And there they are. Um, they're not on the West Coast. And we, we tried, struggled to figure out why we don't have a good answer. It could just simply be that here the speculation is that they came from a population maybe in the middle Atlantic and in and around Chesapeake or Delaware Bay where there was just soft substrate, nothing that their cues for settlement didn't include the cues for rocky shores, that they're just not recognizing that is viable habitat. It, you know, predators are just never 100% effective. So it's hard to say, well, gee, there's, there's more crabs on the rocky shore than there are elsewhere. But, you know, there'd still be some. So, but we haven't seen them. That's interesting because we have a really high energy, you know, the nearshore Rocky Marine is really high energy here on the Pacific mm -hmm. Coast. It is, yep. It, it could be just the difference, you know, it could be just that much more physically challenging and they can't make it. We also have another small crab here, the line shore yeah. crab. It's about the same mm -hmm. size and it occupies that outer yeah. coast habitat, intertidal habitat. Mm. Packy grapsis is, is a, it would be a great predator of small green crabs. And it, it could be that there are enough Packy grapsis that that could be the answer. Yeah, I mean, it's a yeah. possibility. Yeah. That's the great thing about science, more questions than answers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, what, what kinds of research are you currently doing on these crabs? Well, one of the things... sounds like a lot. <laughs> yeah. So we've been doing a few different things. Um, one of the things that we pursued over the last few years is to kind of ask the question uh, and to pursue the question, well, okay, what happens if there is a new invasion? Let's say we find them somewhere in Southeast Alaska, quite a ways up from any other invasion, like just like a new foothold. What do we, is there anything that we can do about that? And so with colleagues of mine, uh, at the Smithsonian Institution at CERC and at Portland State, uh, we've been undertaking um, you know, kind of a, a proof of concept to see if we could go into a small site and put a bunch of traps in and get rid of them. And we were doing this at a place called, um, in, in Bolinas Lagoon called Sea Drift Lagoon, which is basically sort of an artificial, you know, lagoon that's, you know, connected to Bolinas Lagoon, but, but only via a, a couple culverts. But it was a small enough place and isolated enough that we felt we could reasonably go in and try to get rid of all the green crabs and just sort of see whether after a few years with a certain amount of effort could we do that and whether those methods could then be applied to a place in southeast Alaska. Could we figure out a, you know, a rapid response team that could, could go get a, a new northern invasion? With the idea that, of course, you know, a very northern invasion might not be well connected to the rest of the population. There could have been just one little oceanographic blip that got them up there. And they weren't likely to get any more recruitment, you know, anytime soon. So we gave that a try down in Sea Drift Lagoon, which is um, in uh, Stinson Beach, again, Central California, you know, uh, Western Marin County. We were very successful. After five years, we'd fished down the population to less than about 10% of what it started with. And then, ready, we had a population explosion. It went and we suddenly had more crabs than we started with. So it was like the sorcerer's apprentice. It was just a, a terrible result. And what we, what we determined with um, uh, a new NSF grant and a number of experiments and a variety of other things is that 
um, what we had done was removed the adult control of recruitment because crabs are like, you know, most crustaceans and like lots of fish, they're very cannibalistic. I mean, a lot of fish eat their young and a lot of crabs and lobsters and so forth will consume whatever young are around. So what we had done is we had successfully removed enough of the adults that that next big recruitment class of, of juveniles had, no, you know, were free to repopulate. And so we, uh, we tipped the balance and learned a lesson from that. So one of the things that we're doing now is we've also developed sort of a, a model, but also sort of a plan for managers that are grappling with, well, we have an invasive species, what do we do about it? And so um, there are a number of, you know, other fishes and crustaceans and things like this where um, a lot of managers, and we, we did surveys, uh, one of the things we did very briefly was sent surveys to 250 managers in the U.S. and Canada to figure out, like, well, what are you guys doing? What, what's your management goal? Many of them were trying to undertake a suppression, a control, but not a, a full eradication. So our our lesson for everyone is to, well, stay away from full eradication because you might just repeat what we did. So with all that effort and time and trouble, you know, you may be back where you started with five years later. So the idea is to, you know, if, if this is a high priority species, if they're, you know, commercial populations at risk, if they're sensitive, threatened or endangered species that are at risk, you know, it's really worth doing this fish the population down to a low level. And our program or our model, our, our methodology, if you will, it's a framework, provides the target for that. So we can tell managers with the data you have in hand, and we know that they have the data to do this, here's how to develop a target for what we call functional eradication, which is just a suppression. It's basically reducing the invader to a level where you'll get the natives coming back in, you'll get ecosystem functions returning. So the idea is to kind of get the system back closer to where it was before, um, you know, so it's a target that will allow you to do that. So that's been a big focus of what we've been doing, trying to find a way forward for that. Trying to live with the green crabs. Live with them, but, but keep them in check. And one of yeah. the ways we've been able to do that is with community science. So we've been able to use volunteers and community scientists, at least in this location where we were, that were very interested in, in doing this to sort of maintain that program. So we've done this for like five or six years using entirely, you know, volunteer interested, you know, landowners, people interested in the area to try to maintain this. So, cause you know, it, it, it's labor intensive to do this. So yeah. it, it is a good, a good way in which community uh, participants can get involved with this kind of science. So we've been also uh, trying to tout that as a, a both, you know, a learning tool, but a way people can get involved with the, the scientific process. Yeah, that that's a familiar story. I mean, uh, Bob and I are both gardeners, and this is just like trying to control weeds in your garden. You, you, if you pull all the weeds out and just leave a patch of bare ground, and then you turn around and it's covered in weeds again. You, you didn't address the actual problem. You just set the stage for another invasion. And by eradicating all of an invasive species without changing the conditions that led to the invasion in the first place, uh, you just kind of set yourself up to endlessly repeat the the cycle. 
so that's a much more enlightened approach. Yeah. You have to make that decision about, you know, what, what your plan will be. So in a in a localized spot like, uh, for example, you know our little coastal estuaries, they're not very big, and uh, so is this a strategy that could be employed up here? Yeah, it certainly could be. That's right. I mean, in fact, there there's a lot of effort in Washington State. So the state of Washington is spending a lot of time and effort and money to try to get on top of the green crab invasion. So. Um, you know, that's being done. I don't believe that there's anyone in your area that's currently doing that, but that could be. In other words, there could be, you know, a group undertaking this at some point. If, if it's, you know, if it's viewed that this is really a problem pay for the Dungeness crab fishery. So, What kind of information would we need before we could even start to think about it? Um, well, I can provide you that. I mean, the, literally the impacts you know based on its sort of a density of green crabs a catch per unit effort so in part you probably need to go in and you know put more than just your trap in but you know put it out i'm kind of teasing but just a yeah. bunch of traps to sort of get a sense of what the density of green crabs is at this point and then you know we have lots of information to tell you you know well you know, th these things are likely to be impacted if you can get the abundances down to this level then you're likely to be able to see, you know, change without risking the kind of population rebound that we found. So, so part yeah. of it, you know, at least for the species is to avoid the rebound, but to sort of reduce them down to a, you know, a level that would be acceptable. And that could be done, you know, it could be done with, you know, commercial means, you know, or it could just be done with, you know, lots of volunteers and, you know, crab traps, fish traps, folding traps. Well, we got our hands full already with the purple urchins. I don't know how many more of these we can handle. <laughs> no, I know that. Yeah. So you've got what sort of uh, reef check and a bunch of other folks out there. Yep. Yep. So do you have population models that, uh, or models of some sort that if you go out and fish hard enough and you, and you look at the distribution uh, of catch per unit effort in a certain area, and then you repeat it and you repeat it and, you watch the, the the catch goes down. You have models that kind of would estimate the population based on those uh, rates of decrease. You mean a certain size of population based on those data? Yeah, 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 yeah. We do. I mean, we know that you know we are, are looking at sort of the uh, recruitment, if you will, sort of how the change in the population would be, you know, based on a, a specific, um, you know, density. So, um, so that the idea is, you know, and we can also take that and at least for shellfish, I mean, we've done this, you know, we have lots of data sets for, you know, clams and variety of things around actually the world um, that looks at basically we'll say kind of the, the hazard function, if you will. In other words, what's the impact on, you know, fisheries and or, you know, natural species, natural, you know, um, you know species in, you know, the ecological background, we can look at what the, the disappearance rate, the mortality rate, the damage rate is as a, as a function of catch per unit effort. So we can, we can do that. So we know what the impacts are and we also know what the reproductive rates would be, you know, given a certain density. Now this is this is with a closed model. So 
you know, obviously if you're looking at a species with an open population, you have to make some assumptions or you have to sort of include some terms for um, dispersal from other locations. And that's, that's, you know, what, that, that's the $64,000 question. Um, <laughs> that's, that's another call. We spent a whole year at one point trying to use trace elements methods to figure out where recruitment at Bodega Harbor was coming from and going to. And, uh, didn't work out well because we undertook this in a year where there wasn't any recruitment. <laughs> I can, I can tell you, I've had two examples where we set studies up and they both happened in years where basically the recruitment just didn't happen and we didn't get any answers. So, um, yeah. repeat that one. but so, you know, with, within a, a margin of area, we could, you know, pr pr provide that, but yeah, but the model has to be an open population model essentially. Well, that brings up a really interesting point, though, that, uh, you know, there's so much natural variability, really wide variability from year to year. And so you can look at, you know, what's happening this year and say, oh, my God, we have this terrible situation. Uh, and then you, maybe we go out and start trapping crabs out. And then next year, the population falls down and we pat ourselves on the back and say, hey, look, uh, look what we did. But maybe it would have done that anyway. Well, that's why you need to have controls. So what we did is during this period where we were managing the green crab population in Sea Drip, we were also doing um, trapping surveys of five different bays in the region. We were doing this in Elkhorn Slough, San Francisco Bay, Tamales Bay, Bodega Harbor. And so what we were able to do is ask your question, like what's happening in the background versus what we're actually doing? Mm -hmm. So if you're undertaking a trapping effort in Little River, you better be keeping track of green crabs and a few other places to be able to sort out what your impacts are versus just the natural background variation. So these, these fluctuations in these five different sites, were they kind of going up and down together? Or are they out of phase or are they just not connected? That's a good question. Um, most of the ones north of San Francisco Bay were relatively in phase. Uh, Elkhorn Slough was pretty well out of phase. So El so sort of south of San Francisco Bay, Elkhorn Slough seems to be doing its own thing. Um, on a much broader level, we did a study of recruitment variability over like a 25 or 30 year period along the entire West Coast where we had data from. So in the very northern spots in Washington and British Columbia, we had fewer days. But what we found is that Many of the bays in California are more independent of each other in terms of an interannual variability than the Northwest. So like when you get up to Oregon and Washington, they're very synchronous, highly synchronous. So when it's a good year for Willapa Bay or Grays Harbor, you know, et cetera, it's a good year for that whole region. When it's a bad year, it's a bad year. So the level of synchrony depends, you know, on where you are regionally. So. And that's all just a green crab studies, right? Yes. Yeah, so those are green crab studies. That's, that's all green. Crab. That's, that's a paper that uh, is in progress. Yeah. I've given talks on it, but yeah, so that, that's an interesting story. And I think part of that has to do with, to this point, a lot of the recruitment in Oregon and Washington still comes from California. So there is still uh, a flush of recruits that do come from California. So when you get those big um, kind of 
El Nino years where you get that poleward push of water, yeah. that's when you get the big recruitment. So it's warmer, you're getting a, a lot of transport from California up to the Northwest. So the Northwest is actually driven a lot more by external input from California. The California bays are much more driven by their own internal dynamics. Is this that Davison countercurrent, Bob, that, that brings water from yeah, California yeah. northward? Yeah. Uh, yeah. On top of the uh, marine heat waves that uh, move up. <laughs> right. Right. On right. top yeah. of the heat waves, yeah. Yeah. That's, That's when we start finding other crabs. Like, uh, yeah, we found a Southern California crab a couple of years ago from thanks to the blob. Yeah. Oh, that's right. The, 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 that one that, the pelagic crab, right? That in well, we up. got that too. Yeah, we got the, the pelagic red crab, but this was yeah. it, this was actually a purple. Um, it was a, a blue crab relative. Actually, looked like a, a little um, purple blue crab. So, hmm. yeah, all kinds of wacky things moved north when we had. Yeah, that. that's true. Well, they, they as things warm up, they will start to become established and things. Pop, you know, the, the, the interesting thing is that things will come up, you know, with a blob of water. Then when it cools down, they're not able to reproduce. But as probably as things warm up and maybe they evolve, uh, some of them will get established and stick around. Tonight, we're talking to uh, Dr. Ted Grossholtz, professor from UC Davis. We're talking about green crabs in our local estuaries, including uh, Big River and the Albion River. Have genetic tools played any part in uh, trying to figure out dynamics between populations uh, or, or is that something that's not useful or hasn't been explored um yeah you mean so populations of green crabs along the west yeah coast? Try, trying to yeah. look at origin of, of you know recruits and all that sort of thing yeah really good question and so the story i told you about um, sea drift lagoon we actually um, had um, a population geneticist colleague along from woods hole who for which we would get samples of juvenile crabs and um, she ran SNPs and we just published a paper in molecular uh, biology. So showing that at least in this bay that we were working in where we saw the explosion, um, what happens in sea drift stays in sea drift. So we're actually, it, it's a very isolated lagoon and we could show, you know, with molecular analysis that it was not getting recruits from elsewhere. So that explosion was not in any way due to input from anywhere else, which was really super helpful, really interested. But her studies more broadly have looked at genetic structure along the entire West Coast. Um, and uh, so this is Carolyn Teppel, I should give her credit. And so, yes, there are studies that show these kinds of regional associations. So certainly uh, from a green crab perspective, there's a lot of gene flow, but there's certainly, um, you know, kind of uh, associations, if you will, sort of slightly closer lineages in sort of Oregon, Washington, British Columbia, and, and California seems um, more disjunct from that. But again, there is a lot of gene flow. So the populations, um, do uh, you know? You know there there is quite a lot of genetic um, movement of alleles between populations, so they're they're not in any way isolated from one another. But there are regional signals, if you will. Okay. And and just to kind of clarify for listeners, the so these things are they breed they're they're mainly confined to the estuaries in the adult form, 
but when they release eggs and the larvae then are the dispersal mechanism right they they That's then correct. exit the estuary get out into the ocean currents and they can spread wherever the current takes them yep they can move 20 kilometers a day you know with those you know longshore currents right those yeah, currents if they got a 50 or 60 right uh, day uh, life in the plankton uh, they, they can go a long ways they can Cover. go a long way yeah, that's right. right. And so, yes. Um, and I should say that not all invasive species do that. There are a number of species in San Francisco Bay that have dispersing larvae that could very well make it out, but have never left San Francisco Bay over decades. So it's an interesting question. Why not? Why? What did green crabs do that other species haven't? But uh, Green crabs yeah. disperse very well. So which species uh, are stuck in San Francisco Bay that should disperse but don't? That's an interesting observation. Uh, yeah, one is one is a species of uh, uh, Hemigrapsis. Um, you know, there are a number of, you know, sort of uh, molluscan species that certainly should have easily dispersed. It's not clear why the mitten crab also couldn't pick up and disperse to other locations, so... Interesting. Interesting. The more we know, the more we know what we don't know, right? Yeah, well, yeah, there's there's lots of questions like, you know, why is one species such a good invader and the other is not? Or, or just good at spreading, you know? Why? Yeah. And, it, and the history of these invasions is that a lot of these species seem to be really successful for a while. And then some of them are and continue and some of them just sort of flame out, right? That, that's exactly right. Some are very persistent pests, and some show up and vanish into the background. And we don't. I mean, really so probably, have... you know, the worst marine invader, you know, it's not on the west coast, luckily, although could be, is the uh, the lionfish. So we've read about <laughs> lionfish in the Caribbean, the southeastern um, Atlantic, um, and you know, the the, the lionfish. <laughs> Plans have actually looked at the risk of, say, places like San Diego and Baja, and you know they're they're at risk. Um, yeah, yeah, I think they're in the Galapagos too, yeah. and they mm -hmm. and they stick around, right? They're persistent. They they have not backed off at all. Yeah, they they continue to spread and increase in abundance. And, yep, they have they've had big impacts on uh, abundance of native fishes. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned San Francisco Bay and a lot of harbors that have. Uh, a lot of marine traffic uh, seem to have developed a, an invasive species uh, ecosystem that is very similar in many ways, and at least the benthic things that live on the bottom in the mud, and they get very similar to each other because there's so much traffic between particularly, uh, you know, uh, moderate uh, climates, and I don't know if it holds for the tropics or not, but uh, you may see the same thing in the Hong Kong harbors and uh, Boston mm -hmm. harbors and San Francisco Bay, you know, there's a lot of, San Francisco Bay originally was, uh, uh, you know, it, its original benthic fauna, if you look back at the old old records, uh, you know, that were, there, there were, I think it was the Challenger that stopped there, or one of the, one of those big Victorian uh, era uh, expeditions were collecting. If you look at that species list, most of those aren't even in San Francisco Bay anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's the San Francisco Bay, as a few others have, have just changed dramatically as a result of that. That's right. Yeah. So we've had this homogenization process, you know, that that loss of just sort of in between site diversity. But as you pointed out, 
that can mean loss of, you know, some natives, at least locally, you know, from San Francisco Bay doesn't mean that's a global extinction, but, you know, there are a lot of native species that did things that aren't there anymore or such low abundances doesn't matter whether they're, you know, still hanging on or not. Well, I think we only have a minute or two left in the program. Uh, There's been a great discussion, Dr. Grossholtz, and I want to thank you for it. Um, And I usually like to end up by asking you, you know, what uh, what do you wish you knew? What what kinds of things are you working on trying to learn? And then finally, uh, where can listeners go to find more information about this? Uh, all great questions. Um, uh, I wish I knew more about how these things are coming in, and I think that's where we can make the most progress. It's expensive and difficult to, you know, try to get rid of things or do something to manage them afterwards. So I think our efforts and money and time should be spent in figuring out how to keep new invaders out. We don't need to have any additional ones. And um, that's, you know, caught the most cost effective and the most thoughtful. So that's what I'd like to know more about. And that's kind of where, you know, in part I've been helping with and, and hoping to move. Um, if anyone wants to contact me, we have, uh, have a, introduce species website but um you can just look me up there i am in the bottom corner ted grossholtz at university of california davis i'd also point you towards there's a national website about introduced species called nisc n-i-s-c so it's the national invasive species you know uh whatever it is uh goodness i should know what it is committee uh, council committee something like that yeah <laughs> so it's a it, it's a government org so but yeah, so that's a, a great website with lots of information. You can track down lots of issues like this, but I'm also happy to answer emails and questions. Yeah, I'll put some links up. Uh, we'll have that on our website, which is ecologyhour.wordpress.com. And uh, we'll have a bunch of links there, including to the audio of this program, so you can forward it to interested friends. Uh, this will be available as a podcast from the KZYX podcasts, wherever you get yours, just look for KZYX Public Affairs, and you can find this and many others. Dr. Grossholz, thanks very much for uh, clearing us up on what's going on with the green crabs. Now I have a much better understanding of what's happening in the rivers and what to expect, I guess, in the future. Well, it's been really been my pleasure to uh, participate. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, thank you very much. uh, I learned a lot. You've been listening to the Ecology Hour on KZYX. Our guest tonight has been Dr. Edwin Grossholtz from the University of California at Davis. And he, among other things, is involved in research on the invasive European green crab, uh, which, to my surprise, has been here in the coastal rivers in Mendocino County since at least the 1990s uh, but we're currently experiencing something of a population surge and that led to tonight's program i hope you enjoyed it and learned as much as we did thanks very much for listening this has been a production of mendocino county public broadcasting kzyx philo 90.7 fm kzyz willits and ukiah 91.5 fm and fort bragg at 88.1 fm you can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner thank you for listening